Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Should you ever set foot outside of the hotel, you will be shot. Don't miss the new Showtime limited series based on the international bestseller. For the last four years, I've been a prisoner. Why are they keeping you here? Starring Emmy Award winner Ewan McGregor. This is the brave new world that you dreamt of. Be very careful. You are still a prisoner here. Everything in this new world comes at cost. This is still my country. A Gentleman in Moscow, now streaming on Paramount Plus, only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan. How sweet must it be to be in the business of creating problems that you get to come up with the solutions to? Like someone else created the problem. I just described college football on the administrative side of things, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about. It is the Late Kick Extra podcast. Happy that you're here with us. It's probably, probably Tuesday, February 21st, the year of our Lord, 2023, wherever you're listening. But hey, we call this evergreen for a reason. It could be Saturday for all we care. 98% of what we talk about here will still be relevant. Appreciate you guys so much. 47% of our podcast audience is still not subscribed. I'm not going to ask you why. I'm not even going to blame you. I'm going to give you a 48-hour amnesty period. No questions asked. Just subscribe to or follow the podcast. That's it. That's all. That's our only request. And with that, we dive into the waters of the Late Kick Extra mailbag. If you want to submit a question, it's pretty simple. Every Sunday or Monday, I put the call out on Twitter and Instagram, at Late Kick Josh, and you can submit questions, and we get to as many of them as possible. Let's dive in. I wanted to start with this story from Ross Dellinger. So Ross Dellinger, great college football reporter and insider for Sports Illustrated, had a report. This comes out on Monday morning. Well-timed, by the way. And it's, it essentially talks about what's been rumored around the college football watering hole for a long time. And that is the powers that be had been meeting behind the curtain over there that you and I don't get to peek behind. And they've been talking about how to shorten games because apparently length of games is all of a sudden this existential crisis. It's a, it's a hard word to say. It's a harder concept to grasp. Let me tell you what Ross Dellinger reported. Again, he's the messenger here. He said they've come up with four proposals, and this is not final. This will go before a committee and blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Here are the four proposals, two of which have broad support and you and I don't have a problem with. Uh, The first one is they're going to prohibit consecutive timeouts. So if you're lining up for a field goal, they can't burn all three of their timeouts in a row. That's cool. No one has a problem with that, or at least most people wouldn't. Second proposal, no untimed down at the end of the first quarter or third quarter. No one cares. Hardly ever happens anyway. The third one, going to have a little more pushback, but I still expect there to be a majority consensus approval on this, and that is the clock runs after first downs except inside of two minutes. That's the NFL rule, and people have called for that for a while. Some people, not all people, but I think if they do that, largely you won't even notice the difference because, again, it's the NFL rule. When you get inside two minutes before halftime and before the end of the game, the clock does stop on first downs. That's how it would work in college football. In the NFL, they've done that for a long time. So 
Here's the fourth one. The fourth one's completely absurd. The fourth one is the clock runs on an incompleted pass once the ball is spotted. That fundamentally alters the game for no reason whatsoever. So here's what happens in college football. College football essentially is a bunch of people who threw a rock through a window and they broke the glass and then they scream to the neighborhood, we got to fix this problem over here. And everyone knows you caused the problem. Like I look at length of game and I look at the argument they're making and I think about two different things. The length of the football game is not all that different than how long a football game took to play in 1997. You're talking about the difference in a couple of minutes. And you may say to me, Josh, that's not possible because I watch these games and they last way longer. Yes, the presentation of the game lasts way longer. I'm asking you, is it the trappings around the game? Is it the formatting of the game? Or is it the game itself? Because if you understand formatting of broadcasts, then you understand why games take so long now. If you understand how absurdly long a lot of review processes happen unnecessarily, then you understand why games take so long. And sometimes they go three and a half, 345, sometimes four hours. Doesn't need to be that way. There are very simple tweaks that you could make. Unfortunately, some of those tweaks would involve you giving up a little money. And this group of folks in no shape, form or fashion is ever going to explore any kind of possibility that costs them a cent. That's not going to happen. Mind you, my evidence is this is the same group of people that claim to be needing to shorten games for player safety as they're about to expand a playoff and ask some teams to have to play 17 games to win a championship. No one cares about player safety, or at least if you do, you're being disingenuous with your proposed solutions. The answer is simple. The reason the games take longer is because you got longer ad breaks, commercial breaks, as you would call them. You have also got games that don't kick off at the top of the hour. I'll give ESPN credit. ESPN kicks off their noon game at noon. You've watched college game day before, and as soon as they come out of college game day, they toss to the stadium, teams are lined up, they kick it off because they got to get that thing out of the way by 3.30. But by and large, what happens? And I'll tell you what has happened. What has happened is if you factor in, let's just say 10 commercial breaks. There are more than that. I'm just going to be conservative on the estimates here. 10 commercial breaks. You add one 30-second ad break more per game. That's five minutes of extra time in that game. You've then added reviews into games. We didn't used to have reviews. We have reviews now. And I don't know how long on average those take. I'm going to say, let's just say you've got five minutes of reviews in a game. Some are way longer. Some may not be that long. I just added 10 minutes to a game. The intro from a broadcast presentation perspective and tosses to break and the way that halftime has subtly been fattened a little bit because all of those rights have been sold. That adds you another five or so minutes. And I'm going to be conservative on these estimates. I just added 15 minutes to a game and I didn't change a thing about the football field. I didn't change a thing about the rules. I didn't change a thing about the game. Broadcast television and a lot of the formatting of the way the game is structured for television is the reason your games are taking so long. If you want to shorten games, you don't have to screw with the game itself. Your answer's in the mirror. There's nothing on that field that needs to be altered. And again, I'm telling you, I don't have a problem with two of those proposals. Really probably wouldn't have a problem with a third proposal. But you're talking about fundamentally altering a game that's perfectly fine for reasons that are well within your control. And it's absurd. And for the record, 
I don't expect that fourth rule to pass. I think even if you read Ross Dellinger's report, he made sure to characterize these as really sort of still being on the table. He made sure to qualify that fourth rule proposal as being one that is getting the most pushback. He said the third one, the NFL first down rule is kind of 50-50. The fourth one's getting a lot of pushback. It should. It's stupid. It's not the way football should be played. An incomplete pass, to remind you what the rule is, I want you to imagine like a minute and change left in a game. And it's second and 10. You're out of timeouts. And you throw an incomplete pass like 35 yards downfield. They are just suggesting once that ball is spotted, clock keeps running. That fundamentally alters football. Stupid. Should, should not ever work that way. And the other question I ask is, where is this line of people? Where is this army of people that think it's such an existential threat that games last a little bit longer? Now, I'm with you. I'm normally in a stadium. I'm, on, I'm normally on the sideline. You may be at home. You may be in a stadium. None of us like how long commercial breaks are, but I get that this is a for-profit industry. I benefit from it. It would be very hypocritical of me to say, shame on these networks for generating all this revenue. That's how I get paid. I get that. So I'm not being hypocritical. What I am saying is the, the formatting of the game is the problem, not the game itself. And the other thing that I would ask is, even having said all that, like there are a lot of problems that the typical fan, you guys, have with this game. Length of game is never what you complain to me about. You complain to me about process-related issues all the time. You hate the way targeting is or isn't enforced. Uh, you don't like conference realignment for the sake of the almighty dollar. These are things I hear about from you daily, hourly. I tried to think earlier today. We open a mailbag to you every week. It's the way we format this presentation, actually, the Late Kick Extra podcast. I have yet to have one of you ask me what we should do about the length of games. I'm, I kid you not, not a single one of you has ever asked me that. And yet I got a group of folks who have never buckled a chin strap in their life, who meet behind closed doors, who are claiming that length of games, that's, that's the biggest threat facing the sport right now. That is priority 1A that we have to address. And it's just absurd. So to answer the question, I didn't think much of the report at all. The reporting was great. It's not a knock on Ross Dellinger. I'm saying what he was forced to report, which is just the facts, uh, the facts kind of suck, especially the fourth fact kind of sucks. And I hope it doesn't hope it doesn't make it anywhere past that report. The other ones I'm fine with other ones I'm totally fine with. I mean, reviews, those things could be overhauled immediately. It is it is so dumb that we take officials off the field and still have them put on a headset and watch a monitor when when the NFL's got that figured out. Someone in New York could be doing that. You don't even need to leave. Just stand on the field, get ready for the next play, and wait for that voice in your ear to tell you whether the play stands or not. It's so simple. It's almost like, it's almost like we're, we're theatrical in the way that we make officials go through the review process. It's dumb. It's, if we were to reinvent the game today, we would never have it operate that way. I would also argue, if you want to find a little extra time, I probably would not reinvent the game today and make halftime as long as it is. But... If you've sold halftime advertising and naming rights to Ford or Chevy or Target, then all of a sudden, can't, we can't cut into the profits. We can't do that. But I better keep my mouth shut because, again, that's how we generate revenue around here as well. Next question this lovely Wednesday morning, depending on when you're listening. Could be Tuesday. I don't know. Could be next Monday. 
Max from Gresham, Oregon said, is there a viable way to limit the same four to five teams from having 80% of the blue chip players in America on their roster? It would help prevent college football from turning into a regional, mostly Southern sport. Max is being a little hyperbolic there. It's not quite just four to five teams that hoard 80% of the talent, but it's not far from that. Max has a point, and yes, I have an answer for you. The secret lies with Charlotte. That was one of the answers to the riddles in one of the National Treasure movies. The secret in college football doesn't lie in Charlotte. Go 49ers, which is the college football team in Charlotte. Uh, But the secret doesn't lie in Charlotte. The secret lies in Southern California, Texas, and Florida, because that's where the talent comes from. This has always been the case. And I have told you, as long as we have done this show, which is going on three years, in fact, Colin, you're in the other room. I don't know if you know this. We are five days away from our three-year anniversary of launching Late Kick here at 24-7. Where's our balloon? We have no balloons. Jesse, get on it. We need balloons for our anniversary. Um, Yeah, so those three states, what have I said since I've been here? Everyone's talked about parity. And anytime we've gotten into the playoff debate, some of you just want the playoff to expand because you want an expanded playoff. But some of you want the playoff to expand. And your main reason is, I want more competitive balance in the sport. I want the talent to be more evenly distributed. Now, you know my thoughts. I don't think that's the result that you're going to get, but that's just opinion. Could be wrong, could be right, whatever. But I've told you, I don't think you need an expanded playoff to divvy up the talent in a more even fashion. You just need Florida State to be better. You need Miami to be better. You need Florida to be better. You've needed Texas and Texas A&M to be better. You've needed UCLA and Southern California to be better. It wouldn't hurt if the Arizona schools were better. So point being, when you're talking about the same teams, the same three or four or five teams, well, who have we talked about? Think about the past decade. Who, which teams have had the best rosters in the sport? Alabama has had the best roster. You don't go to the state of Alabama and take a ton of talent. University of Alabama doesn't get the lion's share of their talent on their roster from their state. They go to South Florida. They go to Texas. Where'd Bryce Young play his high school football? Played it in Southern California. Tua came from Hawaii. And there was concern that he couldn't adjust to the English language. That was a real thing, by the way, for a little while. One of the most famous message board threads I've ever seen was over on Tim Watts' message board, BamaOnline.com. There was this guy who was concerned about the language barrier for Tua. Which language did he think he was speaking in Honolulu, Hawaii? I don't know. But Tua comes on campus, and the first time a mic is put in his face, he says, "Uh, Hey, I'm Tua. It's good to be in Tuscaloosa. Any questions? He can speak English! Yeah. Yeah, it turns out everyone in his family could, because they all speak English. So anyway, Tua was from a little bit further away than the point I'm making with California players. If you did nothing more then have Southern Cal and UCLA keep more players at home in Southern California. If you did nothing more than have Texas and A&M doing what they're pretty much doing, starting to do right now, which is keep more Texas players home. And here's the key. If Florida, FSU, and Miami had their act together on a high-level basis, and Miami did a good job of it this last cycle, and they were landing top 10 classes, you got your answer, Max. That's all it would take. That's it. Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State for years have raided the states I just mentioned, the regions, the territories I just mentioned, and those, those programs haven't been able to do anything about it because Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State have been able to look them in the eye and say, 
we're proven. We win. It, it, you, you may want to stay closer to home, but can you really stay closer to home and win right now? And the answer has been no. It's that, it's that simple. That's what's had to change. And that's why you hear me talk so much about Mario Cristobal in Miami. I talk so much about Sark in Texas. I talk so much about Lincoln Riley in USC and some of what even Chip Kelly's doing at UCLA in the portal. I talk about it because that's the key to fundamentally changing the sport. That's the key to basically chopping off the, the peak of the mountain. And all of a sudden, you're looking around the landscape and there is no huge disproportionate gap between the, the top tier and then tier two, which is the way it was for a while. And I think we, who knows, fingers crossed, we may be on our way to realizing that a little bit in college football. It's a good question, though. There, I mean, truth is, there are probably more than just that one way that you evenly or more evenly distribute talent. I just have always been of the opinion and continue to be that expanding the playoff and a few more teams making the playoff is not going to be this magic elixir that some people hope. I don't think that that's the case. Um, I do think that just those programs in general getting their act together, that would help you out. And it would help everyone else in return because, see, even if Texas Tech does not necessarily vault into the top 10 in recruiting, just the mere fact that some of the big boys are coming back down to earth a little bit more gives a Texas Tech a little bit higher percentage chance of winning each week or the weeks that they play those big boys. Ditto for Washington in the Pac-12. Washington's probably not ever going to be a top five recruiter, but if the talent's more evenly distributed, who knows? Whomst knows? All right, uh, next question. Dylan came at us and said, will a rebuild year still be a valid excuse in the future of college football with the transfer portal being such a big deal now from Oxford, Alabama? Dylan, it's a good question, and I think the answer is up in the air. And basically what Dylan's saying is once upon a time, not too long ago, like five years ago, it used to be that when your head coach was hired, it was understood, we got to give him time. Then you have the Sonny Dykeses of the world doing what Sonny Dykes just did at TCU, and all of a sudden people look and say, um, were we wrong all this time? Because this dude who was at SMU just took the TCU job and played for a national championship in his first year? Am I reading that right? Am I hearing that right? Yes, you are. Uh, for that matter, Lincoln Riley in his first year at USC, the question was kind of about the transfer portal. Lincoln Riley ended up adding seven wins onto USC's win total. In year one, they went 11-3, and three, played for the Pac-12 championship. Who knows? If Caleb Williams stays healthy, how that game would have turned out. The point is, you're kind of kidding yourself. If you don't think fan bases and other athletic directors around the country aren't watching that and keeping it in the back of their mind for down the road when they may have a new head coach and that new head coach comes in and says, I need some time. You know what they do? In 2004, they say, you got it. In 2024, they're going to say, no, you, you don't get that. Number one, because we think since we pay you a whole lot of money, it, it reinvents the formula for success somehow. Just pop it in the microwave, pop it out 20 seconds later, give us what we want. And number two, Sonny Dykes did it, why can't you do it? Lincoln Riley did it, why can't you do it? Think that's not going to happen? I absolutely think it's going to happen. They may not say it out front. They may not say it at the press conference. 
But that's absolutely going to be the expectation. And it's not just an athletic director thing. I mentioned fans on purpose. I, I think that you're also kidding yourself. If you don't think when your new head coach walks in, maybe 2024, 25, maybe you got one this year. If you don't think that your own fan base, a portion of your own fan base, isn't going to look and say, remember what TCU did in year one? Remember what USC did in year one? What do they have that we don't? You're kidding yourself. That stuff matters, especially if those fans happen to be some of the ones with deeper pockets. You might know them as boosters or donors. It matters. So Dylan, it's a big concern. I think it's, it's why buyouts are not going anywhere. You know, a lot of folks look at the buyout structure in college football and they think it's crazy that some of these coaches get paid so much to get fired. But the, the caveat is you'd be out of your mind not to require that kind of buyout in exchange for the pressure cooker you're walking into. Think about Hugh Freeze right now. This is not the best example because he did not have much leverage with which to negotiate. But let's use Hugh Freeze anyway. Hugh Freeze takes the job at Auburn. These are some of the most impatient people on the planet. And I love them. I grew up right down there, 45 minutes away from Auburn. Uh, but they, they reside in the same state as Nick Saban in Alabama. They have to compete every year against Georgia. Their, their two biggest rivals are the top two programs in America right now. You think that doesn't put pressure on the head coach at Auburn? The expectations are still sky high, yet you've got to face. You're the only team in America, aside from Tennessee, that has to face those two every year. Then you got Brian Kelly and LSU, just for good measure. There are some schedule projections, by the way, which we'll talk about a little later, that suggest in the new SEC format, Auburn will play Bama, Georgia, LSU every year, which they already do. But in the future, everyone else is going to get their schedule calibrated to where their three permanent rival opponents consist of maybe one or two big boys and then a Missouri. No disrespect. Not Auburn. So yeah, Hugh Freeze is going to walk in there. And the reality, Shane Beamer's dealing with this, although he's overachieved. But Shane Beamer's got a heck of a tough job on his hands. But people, as much perspective as they claim to have in August, when they get to December, all they see is your win-loss record. They don't care about your strength of schedule. They don't care about how banged up you were. They don't care about any of that. They, they just, the logic gets sucked out of the room and it's all about result with no context whatsoever. And if you only win seven games and the other guy won nine, that's why you got to buy out the size that a lot of these guys' buyouts are. So put some chapstick on here. Uh, the uh, sound effect was not necessary. That was from me, by the way. Next question. Uh, question here from Lincolnton, Georgia. Do you think college football could become internationalized? And if so... What country or countries do you think football would be really big in? I've got thoughts on this. And I, we've never talked about it on the show, I don't think. Maybe once. Maybe when we were back in Columbus. I think it's a bad idea. And um, I've got reasons for it. So think along with me here. Wherever you are. You may be in the gym, driving around somewhere. Maybe you're in Lincolnton, Georgia. Good people in Lincolnton. Do you think it's in college football's best interest to do stuff like Nebraska and Northwestern just did to play a game in Ireland, for example? I think Stanford has opened in Australia recently. Do you think that's a smart thing? Do you think it benefits our game and benefits your fan bases, benefits your university, your players, 
etc. I'm not talking about the stuff like Harbaugh does. Harbaugh's taking his players on spring trips. I'm all for that. That's a great experience for players. If you can afford it as a program, go for it. We're talking about internationalizing the game, I assume, in terms of taking college football games overseas, which I think is a terrible idea. Hear me out on this. I'm not saying I don't want international viewers. We get viewers from all over the globe. It's wild how many fans check in when I give the shout-outs for the cities. Okinawa, Japan, which I know is a lot of military. But still, we got folks all over the globe. None of them ever tell me, I I need the games to come to me. I got to have the games come to me. It's because I think a college football fan understands why they love college football. The NFL game, I think, is made to be internationalized. I think the NBA is made to be internationalized because those games don't matter from a venue standpoint. With very few exceptions, an NFL game is sort of a a made-for-television broadcast that might as well be in a studio. I know different NFL stadiums have different feels, but if you just zoom it way out, remove like Green Bay, which is totally unique, most NFL venues are just the same. To an outsider, they're the same. In NBA, ditto, just the same. College football is not like that at all. If you're watching a college football game and it's at LSU, there's no mistaking that that's LSU. If you have a clue what you're watching, and the fact is the pageantry and the in-stadium experience, the atmosphere, the presentation, the spectacle of what it's like to watch a game happening in Lincoln, Nebraska, is not duplicable. You can't take that on the road. If you watch a Broadway play, yeah, it's great that you can see it on Broadway, but there's a reason those plays eventually tour around the country. You can load up the set, you can load up the crew, you can find venues all over America and beyond, and you can pretty much duplicate the presentation. You can't package up Ann Arbor, Michigan and take it on the road with you. You can't package up Autzen Stadium. You gotta be in Eugene, Oregon for people to experience that. What is an Oregon football game if it's not in Autzen Stadium? Like, what is an Alabama football game if it's not in Bryant-Denny Stadium? So, for that reason, I don't think internationalizing college football should ever mean taking the games to the international audience physically. What I think we would be very wise to do is market the game internationally and say, we've got a product. Now, it has to stay here, but you, you may love what you see. You, you guys, I've got this here. You may like this a lot. If, if I want to go see the Statue of Liberty, for example, they don't bring the Statue of Liberty to forts in Georgia. I know it's in New York City, and I go to New York City. Or I could read books about it in forts in Georgia, but I know that thing's in New York City. It would be dumb to try and replicate it anywhere else even though I know we have like two other ones somewhere around the globe, but no one knows about them. They know about the one there in New York City. Same thing with college football. So internationalizing the game, I'm okay with, as long as we understand keeping the game fixed on the stage it's supposed to be on and having the global audience focus their attention on the stage where the stage is, that's the key. If you want to internationalize the game, I'm cool with it. Just let's let's make sure we understand what we're marketing. Good question, though. I think you know who's running the sport right now, and you know what's at the forefront of their motivation and imagination, so it wouldn't shock me at all if we don't see more test cases. Hey, since the NFL plays a couple of games in Europe, we got to. 
I mean, the, the NFL can't cough and sneeze without us doing the same thing. I don't know why, um, but that's the way it is right now. Bruce Hornsby. Hadn't quoted Bruce Hornsby in a while. Next up, hypothetically speaking, what would it take to unseat the Week 13 trip to Ann Arbor this year? Whomst are the programs and matchups you're looking at to possibly unseat that game? <laughs> Sorry, Auburn, not this year. That question comes from Charleston, South Carolina. What that question entails is a knowledge of our show and our brand. The first way I can tell is because he said whomst instead of who. Five bonus points for that. And secondly, he's already looking at this fall's tour, and I don't even know what the tour is going to be named. You may be brand new around here. Research indicates like 2% of every show audience is new. So a lot of you are listening to this for the first time. We get to go on the road every Saturday in the fall. We get to just choose where we want to go, get us a couple of sideline passes, and we go. And we experience the best that our sport has to offer. And we give it a name, we call it a tour, we dress it up. Well, I last couple of years have been able to tell you well ahead of time, we're going to be at Ohio State, Michigan, or Michigan, Ohio State. And it could very well be the case again this year. If I had to place money on where we're going to be in rivalry week, I would say we're going to be in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Two years ago, we were up there, snowstorm, especially after the game. I know you guys don't call it a snowstorm. Let me reiterate or iterate. There's no N. I come from West Central Georgia. 48 degrees is coat weather where I'm from. It's, it's a big deal to see frost. So when I'm up there watching a football game played in the snow, and then afterwards, when it's snowing sideways and I'm trying to get from Ann Arbor to Detroit International Airport to fly home, which somehow I was able to do in a rental car with front wheel drive only, it's a big deal. And we were up there and it was a crazy scene. That was the one where Michigan won for the first time in a while. Not to be confused with the next year where they also won in Columbus this past November. We were at that one too. I think about rivalry week and the question, by the way, is if you don't go to that game, which game would you hypothetically be at? I saw the question came from Charleston, South Carolina. So I can't help but think that there may be a suspicion that South Carolina hosting Clemson could be the answer. What do we think about that? There was a follow-up, if you didn't notice, where it said, sorry, Auburn, not this year. So the insinuation there is the Iron Bowl is not going to be a, val a valid candidate. I would probably agree with that, although crazier things have happened. I wouldn't bet on Auburn, Alabama right now being that game. Clemson, South Carolina could be that game. Look look what I'm doing with my hands here. Yeah. Yeah, the, the old, the old uh, what, what do they call this? Twiddling of the thumbs. That means I'm thinking probably harder than I should. Immunity. I think it could be Clemson at South Carolina. I've never been to that game. Recently, for obvious reasons. I did not know, for example, that South Carolina was going to upset Clemson in Death Valley this past year. Uh, but then again, I was at Michigan, Ohio State, so we were still at the right place. But I think, I think it could be Clemson at South Carolina. I think it could be. We'll see. Next question. Brendan asked from Kingstown, Rhode Island, North Kingstown, Rhode Island, mind you, he asked, assuming you have control of all conferences, what would be the ideal conference? AKA, would you move teams back and forth? Maybe have more of a Big East or would you keep them where they are now? Well, I definitely move teams. 
I don't like the setup right now, candidly. I don't like it. I sometimes don't even like the setup within conferences. I don't like that Missouri is in the SEC East and Auburn is in the SEC West. Makes no sense to me. But even beyond just interconference goings on, I don't like that West Virginia has to travel a thousand miles for their nearest road game. Don't like it at all. I don't particularly like that Texas and Oklahoma are about to be in the SEC. It boggles my mind that UCLA and USC are about to enter a situation where they play conference games in College Park, Maryland and Piscataway, New Jersey. Sometimes you can slowly boil yourself to death, the old boiling frog metaphor, analogy, whatever, and and you just... You just slow bake yourself into absurdity. And that's why you want to heat the water up to boiling and toss the frog in because the frog just jumps right out. That water's hot. I don't want to be in there. Imagine yourself, if you were alive in 2001, most of you were, and you loved college football back then. Imagine just pausing life and then unpausing it in 2023 and waking up to see where the sport was and where we are now. And think about how hard you would laugh and then morphing into how badly you would just weep for where the sport is right now. There's no excuse, none, for USC to be in the Big Ten. None. The excuse, I understand why they did it. I'm saying there's no excuse for things to have gotten to that point. No excuse. It's just, it's, it's crippling amounts of ineptitude due to people having their hands on the wheel who had no business having their hands on the wheel. And that's how you get such a disproportionate strength or balance of power in college football, a sport already prone to certain amounts of that. But I'm telling you right now, if you think football on the West Coast ever had any business slipping into the abyss that it had slipped into to the point where the Big Ten could come poach those two, you're crazy. And so conferences to me would always be geographically based because I love the regionality, the territoriality of college football. Love it. Absolutely love it. It's sort of high school football, but on a little bit more broad scale. Like in high school, when I was, when I was playing at Harris County High School, we played Hardaway High School, Shaw High School, Columbus High School. We played teams that we could reach via school bus within an hour. And even now, that's changed in high school sports. I know you guys in Texas live a different life. Some of you have to travel eight hours. But in most parts of the country, especially east of the Mississippi, things used to be or maybe currently still are based on geography. Who are you closest to? And then you got to take into account, obviously, the, the student population size. But absolutely, that's how college football should work. Absolutely. Yes, that's how it should work. And absolutely, it's not how it works right now. I mean, we've you look at rumors these days, not the album, but the actual rumors around college football, and you see, hey, the Big Ten may be looking at Miami. Hey, uh, the Big Ten may be looking at Washington. Think about what I just said. I, that's real. Like what I just told you, those are real rumors. The Big Ten Conference, which is, I think, headquartered in Chicago, it's a, it's a Midwest conference, is simultaneously looking to add a team in Miami, Florida, and Seattle, Washington, 
and it makes sense to people. That's the world we're in right now, where you, we, we may add someone from Miami in this once upon a time geographical sport, this regional sport. We may add a team from Miami or maybe a team from Seattle or who knows? Maybe we'll just add both of them. And given the current direction of the sport, people go, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I can see it. Gross. When I'm college football commissioner, changes are coming. Changes are coming. Sad. Next up. I don't even want to talk about that anymore. It depresses me. The direction of the sport in some cases depresses me. That's why it's best just not to think about it. Um, next question was from Nathan. Nathan asked, what are your thoughts on Deion Sanders' comments on the Rich Eisen show about wanting linemen who grew up in single-parent households and quarterbacks who grew up in two-parent homes from Jerusalem, Israel? I told you we had an international audience, so i got to pull out the old trusty laptop for this. I had producer Jesse send me these exact quotes. These are Dion's words, not mine. I think a lot of you heard this. For the few of you who didn't, listen to this eye-opener. Three quotes here. Different positions are different, Dion says. Offensive linemen, I look for guys from dual parent homes. A strong father they adhere to. Smart kid, at least 3.3 GPA and above. Tough and physical. That's not controversial. He continued. Defensive line, totally opposite. I want kids from a single parent household. Single mama, trying to get it. He's on free lunch. I'm talking about just trying to make it. He's trying to rescue mama. Like mama barely made the flight and I just want him to go get it. It's a whole different set of attributes you look for in different positions. And we have that stuff just chronicled. We know what we want and we go get it. Third quote, quarterbacks are different. We want a mother, a father, two-parent household. We want that kid to be at least a 3.5 GPA because he has to be smart. Not bad decisions off the field at all. He has to be a leader of men and so many different attributes in what we look for when we see a quarterback are there. What do you think about that? Now, there was a group of people who recoiled at this. I saw the reaction the other day. I waited. Candidly, I waited to react to this because I wanted to see. I wanted to see what the reaction was from other corners of our industry. Now, it was sharply divided, as I imagined it would be. And on one side were people who understand how sports work. And I'm not saying everyone who's never played was on the other side of the fence, but the folks I saw pushing back on this and saying this is a problem, you, you, can, you can have that opinion. What I noticed is a majority of them did not have a full working knowledge of how recruiting works and how decisions are made. So let me tell you, what Dion said there is not revolutionary. It's only revolutionary in one sense, and that's he said it publicly. Because this has been a going philosophy for a long time for several coaching staffs, several major high-profile programs and head coaches. And it's not hard and fast, by the way. There are exceptions to every rule. It's not like if you look at the next Joe Montana for example, or in a more modern sense, if you see the next Trevor Lawrence, but he, he only has one parent in the household, Deion Sanders is not going to pass up offering him a scholarship. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we have, we have fairly strict parameters, and then we always have room for a manual override. But he's saying, by and large, because of the qualities we want at this position, and because by and large... 
the kind of person that this kind of environment provides fits these parameters. That's how we're going to set our criteria. And I've, I've heard this for a long time about recruiting defensive linemen. You want, you want people who carry themselves a certain way off the field, but when you get them on the field, they got to they gotta have a little different something in them. And there are all kinds of adjectives you can use. Coaches, especially when you get them off the record, will not hold back in using those adjectives. You got to have a different mentality to play defensive line, to be an edge rusher, and to really maximize impact on a game, to really fully bring out your God-given ability on a football field. It's a violent sport. You got to have a violent mentality to play that position. You don't have to have a violent mentality to be a receiver. I'd love for you to have one, especially when it comes to fighting for 50-50 balls, especially when it comes to being able to stalk block and help me in the run game. I'd love for you to have it, but you don't have to have it. You don't have to have a violent mentality to be a quarterback. I need you to be cerebral. Like Dion said, I need you to be a good decision maker. You need to have poise. I need you to have accuracy. I need other people to look at you and want to follow you. You got to have leadership characteristics. But you don't have to be a violent person or you don't have to have a violent mentality necessarily. Defensive line, you do. There are no soft defensive linemen. They get weeded out pretty quickly. And um, I've talked about this in another context on previous shows that have nothing to do with football. Like I told you, I am a big believer that there is this swath of the American youth right now and has been for a while, that came up in a two-parent household. They weren't rich. They weren't poor. They were just tweeners that don't have that defensive lineman dog in them, and they may not even play sports. They, they're, they're not hardened. They're not soft. Uh, they, they didn't grow up needing for anything, but they also didn't grow up with everything handed to them, and they just kind of float around for a little while. They, they don't have their backs against the wall from birth, but they also aren't born on third base. And I've, I've, I grew up like that. Now, on the economic scale, we were probably a little bit lower than we were higher. I wouldn't exactly call us middle class, but I grew up with two loving parents. And so I did not grow up thinking the world was out to get me. I didn't grow up thinking I am my family's only shot. I didn't grow up knowing I had to raise my loved ones out of abject poverty. I didn't have that kind of fire in me. My motivation comes from other places, but I didn't have that in me. But I had friends who did, and I played sports with them. And you, if you've ever played, if you've ever been in a locker room, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know the guys who didn't have it easy, didn't have it as ready-made for them growing up. Maybe didn't have a dad. Maybe didn't have a mom. Maybe uh, grew up in foster care. It is a touchy subject. It's, it's tough because... A lot of truth has been deemed controversial lately. And this right here is just truth. Your reality is your reality. If you're growing up in a single-parent household, it's not your fault. It, but it, at the same time, it's, it's, it's not a coach's fault. It's not a teammate's fault. It just is. It just is what it is. If it's raining outside, it's no one's fault. It's just raining. So you can either open an umbrella or get soaked. And if you're growing up in that situation or if you're having to recruit kids... You can either acknowledge the obvious, these are the needs I have for my defensive lineman, and that's the group of kids who tends to have those characteristics, or you can get run over. You can have a lot of nice kids who get planted on third down, because there's going to come a time 
where the other team needs two yards to move the chains and milk the clock away. And you got to have guys that prevent them from getting those two yards. What kind of kid do you think is more likely to prevent it? That's what Deion Sanders is saying. It's not controversial. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's not controversial. There are a lot of things that are uncomfortable that aren't necessarily controversial or shouldn't be. So when I heard it, I knew two things. I knew, number one, he's not saying anything different than a lot of coaches think. And number two, oh boy, he said it. He actually said, wow. Deion Sanders just has the leeway to say that sort of thing. I'm not sure I would have done that, that segment um, unprovoked, unasked, but now we had an excuse to, so we did it. Next up, from Racine, Wisconsin, what becomes the hardest job in the country with realignment? Does Auburn keep three permanent games with Bama, Georgia, and LSU, or does someone else get a worse draw, or does that even matter? Yes, it matters. And the hardest job in college football, I've said for a while, is Auburn. And I've given you the reasons. It's harder to win at Miami of Ohio than Auburn. However, at the same time, the expectations aren't nearly as high at Miami of Ohio as they are at Auburn. At Auburn, to be clear, I think we just talked about this like 20 minutes ago. At Auburn, to be clear, the expectation is that the donor class gives a lot of money. The fans sell the stadium out. They are every bit as passionate as their rivals within the conference. They're every bit as invested. They expect the same return on the investment, which is totally fair. The difference is the challenge at Auburn has been disproportionately harder. As we have spelled out, and as was spelled out in the question, even in the future, we're looking at a, a reformatting of the SEC schedule. It looks like Auburn may have to play Bama, LSU, and Georgia every year. No one else is going to have that draw. So when you balance the challenge of schedule with expectation level, I don't know that anyone has it harder than the head coach at Auburn. Now, that happens to be Hugh Freeze right now. Once upon a time, that was Gus Malzahn. And I, I tell you, I don't think we can tell this story enough. How crazy it is being around the Auburn program. Every Auburn fan knows this to be true. You can love that program, but you also got to admit, you tell the story of Auburn football to someone who's agnostic, who may just be a soccer fan, and they know nothing about college football. Just tell the story of the 2017 season. Just, just the one season. And they would have their mind blown. How well do you remember that? The 2017 season. So it starts, and Auburn's pretty highly ranked, I think. And uh, it didn't start off so well. So Malzahn, by the time they went and played a game at LSU, Malzahn's on the hot seat, and it's being called a do-or-die game. And he lost the game. It was, it was like a late decision, but he lost the game. I was there. And I went in the post-game press conference. I've told this story before. I go in the post-game media room for Auburn, and the media beat guys are already in there. Christy Malzahn, Gus Malzahn's wife, is in there. And I'll never forget, she's leaned up against the wall. And I will never forget, I just talked to her about this uh, this year. I saw her on the road. <laughs> I talked about this exact thing. And trust me, she remembered every detail. She's leaned up against the wall over there. And the guys in the room are just openly speculating who the next coach at Auburn is going to be. He hasn't been fired. They're just, they're, they're already assuming, okay, Malzahn's out. And like, yeah, his wife's standing over there, but who cares? We're just going to, 
disrespectfully talk about this within earshot of her anyway. You know, because he gets paid a lot of money, so feelings don't matter. Well, Malzahn didn't get fired. Then he ends up beating number one Georgia. Then two weeks later, he beats number one Alabama. This is not even the year where you had the prayer in Jordan Hare and the kick six. This is another year that they pulled that off. This is another year Malzahn found a way to beat both of them. So Malzahn beats Georgia, number one at the time. Beats Bama, number one at the time. It's the first time anyone's ever done that. They go to the SEC championship game. The week leading up to the championship game, there's six days between the Iron Bowl and the SEC championship game. Malzahn and his agent, Jimmy Sexton, and mostly Jimmy Sexton, pushes Auburn up against the wall and says, new contract right now. And Auburn did it. They had no other choice. Because at that time, for anyone who says that was a bad decision, at that time, Tennessee was up in flames. That was when they were trying to hire a new head coach. They had fired Butch Jones, and it was just a disaster. So Auburn, on one hand, they're watching their guy, who was on the hot seat once upon a time, beat back-to-back number one teams, and he's going to the SEC title game. And they're thinking, if we do fire him, who's to say we look any different than Tennessee? And they were right. Like, what coach in their right mind was going to take the Auburn job, seeing that the guy who just beat Back-to-back number one teams they told wasn't good enough. There's no security in that job. Why would I go there? So anyway, they they extend him. That was just 2017, guys. So the Auburn job has been that way for a while, and I think it's going to be that way. It's just crazy because like around every corner, there could be anything. You never know what's coming at Auburn. You never know this is coming either. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we're back. I heard from the other room. Producer Jesse says he saw the ad break toss coming, which, as we all know, is, of course, ridiculous. But he says he saw it coming. I just got an 8 out of 10 on the out of the blue scale on the ad toss. And I take a lot of pride in you not knowing when the ad toss is coming. And I think I accomplished my mission today, but there are dissenting voices in the room. So if you are riding around right now in Tacoma, Washington, saying, I heard it coming, I disagree with you, but just know that you're not alone. And ultimately, we're all in this together. That's almost never the case, but if you just say that, people can't argue with you. Okay, next up. Connolly hit us up and said, what's the best place you've eaten whilst traveling for the Every Given Saturday tour from Nashville, Tennessee? There are a lot of contenders here, but I do have a favorite. My favorite is a place called Wright's Barbecue up in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And it's probably because, number one, the food's great. Number two, the way we got treated up there 
was first class all the way. And mind you, I had never been to an Arkansas game before this past year. And I'd made a big deal about it. As those of you who watch Late Kick Live well know, or listen to any of the pods, you well know, I make a really big deal or made a big deal about how, how have I not gotten to an Arkansas game? The new Arkansas is going to be Oklahoma, by the way. How have I not been to an Oklahoma game? But anyway, I was making a big deal about it. And the fine folks at Arkansas, they took heed. They heeded. They headed of. They took head of my, my complaints that I hadn't been up there. So finally, when I announced that I was going up there, it was great. We've never been treated better than when we went to that Arkansas game. They played Cincinnati week one. And even though I couldn't see, as I have documented for you, Due to caffeine overdose, I couldn't really see anything, but that's okay because you don't have to see to be able to eat. And that's a fact. Always has been, always will be. We went to Wright's Barbecue, Jordan right up there. He welcomed us in. He loaded us up free of charge, comped everything, didn't have to do that, comped us with basically the entire menu. And I got to tell you, Wright's Barbecue is a staple amongst the Fayetteville, the Northwest Arkansas culinary scene. And so that line was long. And not since I bought a flash pass at Six Flags have I felt as guilty skipping a line and going right to the front and getting the prize. At Six Flags, it's roller coasters. At Wright's Barbecue, it's just all the pulled pork you could possibly imagine and sidings and everything else. So it was great. Um, So I'm going to say Wright's Barbecue. And even if you're passing through town and there's not a game, check out our friends at Wright's Barbecue. Good people up there. Good... um, Good, good staple in the community. All right, next up, had a question that is what we would call a classic conundrum. Meemaw would call this a classic conundrum. And the question is more, it's a question, but it's just more a predicament. Here it is from Johnson City, Tennessee. My brother is going to play at an interconference rival from my college. How do I go about this? There is no right answer. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Life's just going to be tough for you for a little while. I want you to picture this for a second. I want you to just put yourself in the position of like a Texas lifelong diehard football fan whose brother gets a scholarship to Oklahoma. How serious are you? And then, on the other hand, it's how thick is brotherly love? I'm just leaving it open-ended. That's what the pause is for. I don't have an answer. I, it's very much a case-by-case basis. Were your brother and you close growing up? Most brothers are. I mean, till death do you part, right? Well, I mean, sometimes these rivalries are kind of life and death. At least that's what it feels like. And that's only sort of hyperbolic. Think about the Red River shootout. Think about what you feel like in not the day, but the week leading up to that game. And all of a sudden, your blood is going to defect and he's going to go play for Oklahoma. Whoops, is he? What gives him the right? Well, in reality, it's his life. He can do what he wants. But you know what? You can too. You know what you can do? You can text him the morning of the game and say, good luck, bro. I hope you play well in an otherwise miserable afternoon for your team. I'm not against it. I'm for it. Now, some people would tell you that's wrong. And some people would tell you that it's selfish for you to care about your own desires over the greater good of the family. And to that, I, I spit on it. That's what I do. This Listen, fandom is a selfish world. You don't have to appease everyone else with your fandom. You got to appease people in every other aspect and facet of your life. Just have them give you this one thing. 
And it's not like your brother didn't grow up knowing where your allegiances lied. It's almost like he's testing you. Because I can virtually assure you, if he had an offer from Oklahoma, he probably had an offer from Texas, and you know good and well, you know as well as I do, some of these siblings out there go against the grain just for the sake of going against the grain. Well, I'm not going with you. That's what I'm saying. So... They're in Johnson City, Tennessee. I don't know what the particular dynamic is. I don't know which side of the rivalry you're on. I don't even know which team you root for. But I'm telling you right now, if, if brother is living his own life, forging his own path, you forge your own path too. And if it means rooting against the logo and his helmet on Saturdays, so be it. Family reunions will be just the same 40 years down the road, no matter which color pom-pom you wave. What a quote. What a quote. All right, let's wrap it up here with a question that gets a little personal. And I don't know what the answer is going to be, so let's see if I figure it out along the way. We're going to jump out of the plane with no parachute on. The question was from Denver, Colorado, and it was, what would you be doing if you weren't working at CBS? I have no idea what I would be doing. I'm a believer that we all have different talents and abilities. No one is talentless. I believe we all have talents and abilities. I believe we all have passions. And my philosophy has always been, let's, let's find the intersection of our talent and our passion. Hopefully there's a career or several careers there for us. Now, the reality is most of the time, if you're observant enough, there are several career paths at the intersection of your talent and your passion. So I'm sure I would figure something out. But just off the top of my head, I am not like one of these folks who very, very quickly says, oh, I'd be working at the bank my dad owns, or, oh, I'd be, I'd be in finance, or I'd be in accounting, or I'd be this and that. I don't know. You know my backstory. You guys know where I came from. It is not a conventional route to get here to begin with. You know that my two biggest hobbies outside of this building are storm chasing and train hopping, and neither pays particularly well, so I don't know. I hope I wouldn't be in the fabric warehouse still. I hope I wouldn't be making minimum wage on a construction site or installing heating and air conditioning units still. I've done all that. I hope I wouldn't be working in local news because while it is an invaluable training ground, you make no money working in local news. And more times than not, it is, it is a tough road to hoe, which I always thought was road, even though I grew up in South Georgia farming country. For some reason, I never knew it was road to hoe. And it always sounded inappropriate anyway, so let's just move on. I don't know what I would be doing, but I guarantee you whatever I would be doing would not make me as happy as what we do right now. It is unbelievable that you can figure out a way to get paid to do what we do. Uh, but I always use it. I love speaking to colleges, love speaking to anyone I can speak to, because it was foreign for so long to me, the concept that you can enjoy your job. Because I came, uh, I was never taught this. It's not like my parents ever sat me down and said, your job needs to make you miserable. No one ever said that to me. It's just that you guys live life just like I do. Did anyone need to tell you? I guarantee you a lot of you are at jobs you hate right now. Does anyone need to tell you you're supposed to hate it or do you just hate it? Like, let's be real. I've worked jobs I hate. Some of you right now are working a job you hate. I don't know what your situation is. I don't know how old you are. I'm just saying, I thought that was supposed to be the way it is for a long time. Your, your hobbies are what you do for fun, and your job is what you do Monday through Friday from 9 to 5, and it, it just sucks, and you just pray for the weekend to hurry up and get here. Only later 
in life, not like 50 years old or anything, but only a little bit later into my 20s did I finally realize, wait, those people on TV are real people. It's actually feasible that you could do that for a living and, and a good living. You're talking to, I'm, I, look, I, I'll be wide open with you. I started out making $26,500 a year in local news. And that wasn't that long ago, by the way. And so that's the salary structure I'm used to. That's the world I'm used to living in. I remember some of our folks, like on the meteorology side, when they would get up into the 45 to 50K a year range, that was absurd to me. I mean, like otherworldly absurd money. And I also came from Fortune, Georgia. So that is what it is. But all of a sudden, you start to realize, wait, that fantasy world, that's a real world. You could really, you got to kick and you got to fight and you got to punch, but you can work your way into that world. And not only can you make really, really good money, you can do what you love to do. It's always a cliche when people say, oh, you need to find out what you love and do it and you won't work a day in your life. I thought they were lying. They're not lying. That's a real thing. It's, it's fortune cookie material. You might as well go to P.F. Chang's and open a fortune cookie. That's what it will say. But they're right. And anyone who is fortunate enough to experience it or blessed enough is the right term to experience it like we get to do, like I get to do. Man, they're right. So uh, you, may, you may not have this as your passion. You may not be talented enough to do this, but you're talented enough to do something that I probably suck at. And you're probably passionate about something I couldn't care less about. Find that intersection and go do it. And uh, you may very well be asked one day, what would you be doing if you didn't do this? And you'll probably say, I have no clue. Because that's my answer right now. I have no clue. I do know this, though. The show is thriving. We actually, you can't tell, but we had to stop recording midway through because we had a big meeting about a project we're working on right now. I can't tell you anything about it. Sworn to secrecy, but you're going to love it. And it's just going to be a continuation of us getting to do new things because you have grown the brand to such a point that we, we actually have a portion of the company that revolves around us now. Imagine that, because we didn't exist three years ago, two and a half years ago. We had just been a blip on the radar screen, and now you guys have blown the show up to the point where, I mean, we walk in the room and people notice, so we appreciate it, because it's not us, believe me. It's you. You drive the bus, not us. Do me a quick favor, just a couple of them. Make sure you are subscribed to this podcast if you haven't already. When I say that we we get a lot of attention now, it's because you have done those sorts of things. I will never require you or even ask you to do anything associated with the show that costs money, ever. So everything I ask you to do is free. Subscribing, sharing the show, you know, swiping mom's phone while she's not looking and making sure she's subscribed as well because don't worry, it's not going to hurt her. What she doesn't know won't hurt her. Yeah, all that is smiled upon around here, not frowned upon. I encourage such activity. That's about it. That's all I need. I appreciate you guys so much. So for Director Colin, for Producer Jesse, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for listening to the Late Kick Extra podcast. From us to you, have a great rest of your day, and God bless. 